Welcome to the SOSV Climate Tech Summit podcast series. I am the AI voice of Ben Joff, a partner at SOSV and co-curator of the summit. In this episode, we feature three speakers, Rob LeClerc, founding partner at AgFunder, Kate Danaher, managing director at S2G Ventures Ocean Fund, and Greg Smithies, partner at Fifth Wall. They discuss the benefits and challenges of raising funds from category-specific climate tech firms. They also talk about the most exciting spaces in agriculture, buildings, and oceans, as well as the state of the climate tech funding market. The speakers emphasize the importance of specialized underwriting, pattern recognition, and the need for realistic valuations in the climate tech sector. They also highlight the opportunities presented by the Infrastructure and CHIP Acts. This conversation is moderated by Katie Fehrenbacher, climate tech reporter at Axios. Great. Hi there. I'm excited to be here. I write Axios' Climate Tech Deals newsletter. It's a subscription-based newsletter. I started covering clean tech back in 2006 when Silicon Valley first started investing in it. Um, today, we're going to be talking about category specialist climate VCs. You know, there's the argument that, you know, climate is everything so broad and covers so many aspects of society that investors need some kind of specialization to be able to go deep in the sector, at the same time, you know, investors who fund across verticals say there are benefits to leveraging more diverse technologies across their networks. Um, but we're going to dig into all the, the nitty gritty on the potential benefits or some challenges with uh, specialist climate tech VCs. And today we're going to be chatting with a group of investors that are leading funds across agriculture, buildings, and oceans. Uh, first up, we've got Rob Leclerc. He's the founding partner of AgFunder, which is a decade-old firm that's one of the most active in food tech and ag tech. Um, they've backed companies like Microworks, Kula Bio, CH4 Global, and Rob has a background as a scientist and engineer. We've also got Kate Danaher. She's the managing director for S2, S2G Ventures Ocean Fund. The S2G is a firm out of Chicago, and the Ocean Fund launched in 2020, I think it was, is a $100 million fund to invest in tech around oceans and seafood. They've backed companies like Brilliant Planet, Avant, and so far. Um, Kate has expertise in food ag financing. She was previously the chief lending officer at RSF Social Finance. And finally, we've got Greg Smithies. He's the partner at Fifth Wall. Fifth Wall is the largest venture capital firm focused on tech from the global real estate industry. Um, and they've backed companies like SolarCycle, Aurora Solar, and Blend. So I'm just going to jump right into it. You know, what are the biggest benefits of raising funds from category-specific climate tech firms? Uh, why don't we start with you, Rob? Okay, sure. Um, so, I mean, I'd, I'd say one of the biggest benefits is that, you know, we get to see a lot of things and, and some of the patterns are going to hold the same and it's going to be different from something like enterprise SaaS. Um, and also I'd say the, uh, you know, at least from my standpoint, the entrepreneurs we speak with, um, we're generally operating in the world of atoms and we need to understand that. Um, and, you know, I've come from a, a scientific background and a lot of the founders I speak with have PhDs um, and it, it really able to connect with them um, at, a, at a technical level is, is both important sort of to, to build trust and really understand what they're working on and, and how to help them forward. And then also how to help them tell their story better sometimes and, and, and raise capital. So, yeah. Kate, what do you think? Along the same lines, I think um, specialized underwriting is it can't be overvalued in this sector. Um, I think that there's a lot of, to, to Rob's point, pattern recognition, especially in these emerging industries, 
is really important. And it's not always easy to see when we're only, you know, Agfunder is a decade into this and is one of the earliest. Um, pattern recognition just takes a lot of reps and seeing it over and over and over again. And pattern recognition is a great benefit to the companies, whether we're sitting on boards and helping them think through their unit economics or helping them think through um, validation to, to scale and how they do that. It, I think it's really important. And the last thing is also, I think syndicate risk is something that we all have thought about in the past, like how we bring in and crowd in capital to help our companies grow. Um, it's gotten easier in ag, I think, over the past few years. Like Oceans, for example, is still relatively like nascent and niche. And so having those relationships um, built out that you can call on to support your companies, I think is something a specialized underwriter can do. Yeah. Um, so some of the benefits um, kind of mainly you talked about for the startup sake, um, are there benefits for, for the LPs? I mean, are, are the returns better? Do you guys have any, any details on that? Yeah, I can maybe maybe take take this one. Um, I think that there's definitely much better much better returns. Well, actually, the SEC says I can't say there are better returns. Um, there, in theory, should be better returns here um, uh, for for the LPs because um, especially with these sorts of companies, meaning their atoms, their manufacturing companies, their science involved. Typically, that means two things. One, they're probably going to build factories at some point in their in their life cycle, or you know, go and go and build manufacturing lines. And two, their products are typically project financed when they go out there. So think of like batteries going into the grid, or solar panels going into the grid, or things like that. There's project finance involved in actually pushing those products out to market. Now, what that means is you've got a very complicated capital stack that can go into how you finance a factory and those projects for the deployment. If you do this the dumb way, uh, which is you know just using venture capital dollars to build factories, you're probably uh, crushing your LP's returns because that's not the most intelligent way to do it. Um, there, uh, there are pools of capital out there like project finance debt, there's MES, there are uh, grants, there's loan program office stuff from the DOE. So people who are specialists in the space are really a lot more sophisticated at getting those other pools of capital here, which means you're taking less top code dilutive equity as a startup, which is better, obviously, for you as a startup founder, but also uh, better for the returns for the entire company and therefore for the LPs. What are some good examples that you could show? I mean, I know Fifth Wall has backed a lot of a lot of startups in the space, um, kind of building technologies. But do you have a one or two examples that you want to do? Want to highlight about you know how the, the specific vertical has, has helped them from the funding aspect? Yeah, absolutely. And this this one is topical because I think actually the news is out today. Uh, one of our portfolio companies is Sand Elements. So they they recycle um, lithium-ion batteries, uh, raised $452 million today. Um, that is on the back of them getting a, um, a an infrastructure bill grant for $480 million earlier on this year. So um, when you look at a company like that, right, you're building massive gigafactory scale recycling facilities. Each one of those, you know, rough numbers is like a billion dollars. If you went and raised a billion dollars of straight Topco equity capital, um, that would be very punitive to the management team and everybody's returns. Whereas instead, uh, what that team has really been able to do uh, with our help and the help of the other investors around the table here is first go and access the quote unquote free money. That was the infrastructure bill um, that gave them uh, $480 million in a grant. That is about as good as you can get in terms of non-dilutive capital. Um, and then this Topco equity, the $452 million today, but we're still going out there and exploring actual sort of project finance, meaning a meaning um, project debt type stuff. So when you look at these companies that need to get billions of dollars of capital into the ground, you don't actually need to raise billions of dollars of top code dilutive equity. There, there are other pools of capital out there like that. 
Yeah. And just to poke at your argument just a little bit, kind of what would, you know, kind of fifth wall is in the kind of building and built environment, you know, like how would um, that kind of give, you know, something like ascend uh, an edge um, to kind of have your kind of your vertical expertise, like uh, uh, with that growth. I mean, to play devil's advocate, you know, like a, a firm that invests across but also be knowledgeable about, you know, private private uh, project financing and kind of the other types of capital. So, like, why why would it benefit them to have kind of you guys in their in their corner? Yeah, actually, actually, two two layers here. One uh, specifically to Ascend Elements, where we see this in many of our portfolio companies. So, we've got about 115 corporate partners around the world, in and around the real estate and construction space, right? So, uh, that's in 17 countries. I think we account for um, a third of all the homes built in the U.S., for example, and I think two million apartments and two million hotel rooms. It's it's kind of ridiculous numbers. Um, when you think of uh, where are all of the batteries in the world going to go? Around about a third of them are going to go onto buildings, right? They're going to either be on the side of a building or a house powering it, um, or they're going to be nearby, you know, in a community a community solar or, or utility uh, grid type thing. Um, so think of it as a third of the batteries going into the built environment directly. Um, where are all the dollars going for batteries in terms of investment? They're all going into EVs, right? So we've got a massive, massive mismatch here of every, uh, not every, but the vast majority of the investment dollars out there are steering battery companies to just chase the EV world, where it turns out that a third of all the batteries are going to end up in buildings. Those are our corporate partners and where we can arrange those offtake agreements to, to go and put those batteries into, say, the 380,000 houses that uh, our corporate partners build every year or the 10 billion square feet of commercial real estate that we've got. Great. Thank you. Um, do you see any challenges um, or do you see any benefits that some of your partners that are investing across verticals um, are having that, that uh, climate-specific ones or not? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I can jump. I mean, is a little bit to my last point, right? I think due diligence is is extremely challenging um, for some of the generalist investors. Um, both they don't have the network uh, to be able to properly due diligence. If that, even if you even if you have some expertise in it, we typically pull in sort of some of our founders, um, other people in our network, corporate partners um, who have some really deep understanding um, as well. I mean, you know, we build and persist relationships. Uh, in a very particular area for very particular types of companies. Um, and, and that's sort of more difficult when you're a generalist. You can't have relationships with everybody everywhere all the time. Um, and those relationships can be you know, extremely valuable as sort of partnerships or investments uh, or, or, even, or even advice. Yeah. Sorry to rephrase. Like, do you see any challenges for vertical-specific funds that um, you know, maybe the, kind of the more generalists um, have, you know, have a, a leg up in some way. I mean, do you see any? Uh, well, I mean, you know, there, I, I would say some some sectors get hot, right? I mean, we, we we look at AI and people are asking us what we're doing in AI, and we're we're just not doing much. We're uh, maybe in the world of robotics, we can see some interesting things that intersect there. But um, if everyone wants to be in AI or wants to be in crypto, um, you know, maybe maybe the the LP dollars dry up a little bit or get or, or get allocated in other areas. So it can be sort of challenging to certainly on, on the fundraising cycle to fundraise against that. Um, and certainly if, if certain areas are hot, it may inflate other areas. I mean, we're not software, right? Um, um, but, you know, entrepreneurs may see software valuations and, and, and start to think um, in those terms, particularly when, when, when they may have some upfront capital. So there's, there's certainly some challenges. Gotcha. Uh, 
I also think if I can just add one more thing, I think um, check size can be a big differentiator. You know, for a lot of specialized funds, we on the average are smaller than the large, like the larger generalist um, climate tech funds. And so their ability to either write larger checks or their ability to follow on with different pools of capital that they have um, is an advantage that they could have over a specialist fund. But that's that's why you know, specialist funds and generalist funds need to be working together because we need to bridge, we need to bridge the capital stack. Great. Thank you. Kate, I wanted to dive in with you. Kind of what are the technologies in your, um, in ocean and seafood that you're most excited about investing in right now? I know it's the kind of more nascent space that I don't know a ton about. So I'd love to hear about, you know, what you're excited about there. Yeah, I think, I, and I referred to it as a nascent space earlier. There's certainly not a lot of capital going into the space right now, but in terms of the potential disruption of existing industries, it's just a, a huge opportunity. I mean, if you think about 80 to 90% of goods travel the oceans, um, there's oil and gas has been there for a long time, but there's also emerging renewable energy opportunities or shipping, seafood. There's just, there's a lot of very large industries that are being forced to think about how they adapt or mitigate the impacts of climate change on their business. And so the things that we're really excited about, we're really excited about um, some of the decarbonization work happening in the maritime uh, and seafood industries. There's enabling technologies that allows shipping to be much more efficient. And efficient in the shipping industry is usually like fuel savings. That means a lot to to a big shipping company. So there's a really strong business proposition for doing that. So we're excited. There's also a lot of regulation, especially in Europe, happening around carbon emissions for shipping. So there's just a lot of good tailwinds going into that space. And the other one, uh, I guess the other two I'd say is, uh, one, we're really interested in the plastic problem in our oceans. And we're really interested in trying to solve it further upstream around material sciences, new materials that are not plastic, um, enzymatic solutions that can dissolve microplastics, or a company that we invested in, uh, we just closed their Series A, is called Matter out of the UK, or a group out of Dyson that makes a micro microplastic filtration um, component that can be integrated into washing machines, um, and eventually can go to industrial scale. So actually, like, capturing 90% of the microplastics that otherwise would flow into the ocean. Um, that currently make up 30% of the microplastics. So that, and then I get the last thing, and it, this is nascent in our base, but the ocean is one of the biggest carbon sinks on the planet. Um, and it has the opportunity both through natural processes, but also like accelerated technology to really sink and capture a tremendous amount of carbon. There's a lot of research happening and a lot more needs to happen to scientifically like ground truth uh, what's possible, but it's a really promising area for decarbonization. Interesting. Thank you. Greg, I want to jump back to you. What do you see as the most exciting space in the, in the built environment? Um, so we, we kind of see the, the world through the lens of a building. Shocking. Uh, so buildings start out as raw materials, right? And uh, construction uses about 40% of the world's raw materials. It's a, a shockingly large number. But here, think about clean steel, clean glass, clean concrete, those sorts of things. Uh, they're boring, but they're all massive markets, right? You know, the concrete industry is an $880 billion market, for example. Um, next step, we, we kind of look at things that uh, go into how do you put up buildings faster, cheaper, um, because frankly, we just need 
need more houses, right? Uh, but then also better for the environment. So we would love if all of those new buildings being built are passive house standard, are net zero to run, you know, things like that. Um, I think the last numbers I saw is that the, the world is constructing around about one entire New York City every single month at the moment. Um, so again, crazily large markets. So here we look at technologies like um, prefab construction, modular, 3D printing, things like that. Um, then we get into the life cycle of the existing buildings and how do we operate them. And this is where really where we collide with the energy transition. So this is take your existing buildings. Um, and in terms of efficiency, you know, we've got $362 trillion of buildings out there. And on average, from an efficiency point of view, I think the technical term would be that they're crap. Um, and so how do we retrofit them with heat pumps, better insulation, better doors, a lot of boring stuff there. But then also on the energy transition side, those should all be energy assets, right? Put solar on all of those roofs, battery on the side of the building, EV charges in the parking lot, right? We've got, you know, the average gas station in America um, uh, sells about a million and a half dollars of gasoline per year. That's just the gasoline, not the slushies. Um, and that is revenue that over the next 10-ish years is going to move from the oil and gas industry to whoever's got the nearest EV charges, right? And that's your parking lot at the shopping mall, it's your parking lot at your apartment building and at the office, right? That's you know hundreds of billions of dollars that's reallocating from one industry to another. So there's a massive, massive reallocation there, um, which is very exciting. Um, then we hit uh, end of life and recycling. About 40% of all of the materials in the world's landfills is building rubble. It's kind of crazy. It would have been awesome if we had reused that, right? Or maybe not torn those buildings down. So we look here at recycling, turning the, uh, the waste going through the buildings into energy and stuff like that, as well as recycling water. Um, then final piece of the puzzle is actually climate resiliency, which uh, hasn't hasn't necessarily come up so far. But um, we see this very acutely in the built environment because uh, um, the joke I always make is buildings are worth less if they're underwater or on fire. Um, you should you should check my math on that. Um, and so here we look at a lot of technologies, be it from you know, financial products, you know, better insurance and actuarial models to understand wildfire risk, all the way through on the other end of the spectrum to actual physical protection. So think sea walls to stop uh, stop those tidal surges or uh, paint that can stop a building burning down in a in a in a wildfire. Um, okay. So really, we do look at that at that full full uh, spectrum. And then the hottest areas in here are. Uh, Honestly, it's wherever IRA dollars are flowing, right? Because you've got hundreds of billions of dollars of stimulus money flowing into many of these spaces, like the battery stuff uh, and the EV charging, for example. Yeah. And Rob, just a kind of quick one from you, where you see the kind of hottest uh, food and ag tech uh, startups. In yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, on the, on the climate side, right, we've got just an incredible ability for an opportunity for the earth to capture tremendous amounts of carbon. Um, and so you know, the, either, either through like enhanced rock weathering or, or some other type of chemistry, but then also leveraging biology, which is, is incredibly scalable in a way that maybe direct capture and, and heavy equipment isn't. Uh, so I'd say those are that, that's kind of a pretty interesting area for us. Um, and we're also uh, looking a lot at ammonia um, which can both be a reserve fuel uh, for, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think hard, hydrogen is going to be a great uh, liquid fuel. I think uh, ammonia would be a much better one until so we, we, we're invested there a little bit um, and we'll keep looking at that space. Okay. Um, I know the climate tech numbers, at least earlier in the year, kind of were, were looking at the fact that, you know, growth funding had been more challenged, but, you know, now with, you know, 
kind of IRA dollars flowing in. It seems like a lot of growth companies are getting funded. So, but um, at least in the beginning, beginning of the year, you know, growth was being challenged. And um, at the same time, startups are kind of trying to figure out um, how to close deals, taking longer to close deals and, and, you know, valuations can be challenged in some areas. Um, uh, wondering what you guys see as kind of the state of the climate tech funding market this year you know are you expecting like uh weaker numbers for the rest of the year you kind of it was just like a tiny blip for the beginning of the year kind of uh kate what what do you what are you seeing in terms of how are you feeling about the climate tech funding market um well i think the money has to start moving at some point right everybody has an investment period and for most that's three years and we've kind of been locked up for almost a year. So the money does have to start moving and we're seeing it moving. I think, I think from the startup perspective, I think that the valuations and the structure is going to stay. So I think people are going to really be challenged on their valuations and kind of resetting their cap table. I don't think that's going to move as quickly as the money will start to move. Um, but I think the rest of this year is going to continue to be hard, but I, I, know, I, I anticipate that towards the end of next year, uh, this year and early next year, we'll, we'll see things really moving. Okay. And we're seeing it now, right? Like as soon as someone gets a term sheet, there's a lot of people who are willing to tag on to that investment. It's really finding that lead investor that seems to still be what's taking quite a while. Mm. Yeah. I, I, to, to add on to that, Kate, I, I would, I would agree with that. Um, but I think you've got a couple of funds out there, ours, and, ours included, where we're kind of uh, saying that you should never let a good crisis go to waste and really leaning in here. Yeah. Um, if, if people aren't, aren't out there wanting to put out lead term sheets, we'll do it. And, and this is public information, but we've led on a dollars basis um, more climate tech fundings than any other fund in the entire world. And that's not to say that we're a big fund. Um, it's just we are coming in with that lead term sheet to price these things and then bringing the consortiums together. You, you just At the moment, the market kind of seems to need someone to just catalyze around to happen, but then the dollars are there once it's being catalyzed, right? Greg, are you finding that there's you're having a lot of hard conversations around valuation expectations? Or are you seeing that those are coming in line when you're when you're dropping those term sheets? Uh, I I'd say they, they fall into three categories. And, and Rob, thanks for, thanks for this question. Um, there, there's still a, co a cohort of companies out there that are raising money and able to do it at up rounds almost like it's 2021. Now, they tend to be in the spaces where the IRA cash cannon is pointed directly at them, right? So where the investors are basically almost getting like a one-for-one dollar match of we're going to put in a dollar of equity and we're going to get like a dollar of IRA money. Those are great. Those companies, uh, no, no down round situations there. But then there is an entire other cohort of ones where, you know, Last run was done at the tippy, tippy, tippy top of the market when these companies were trading because of SPACs at 20 times forward revenue. And I think everybody here around the table understands that if you're a climate company and you know you're building factories and things, chances are you should actually trade like an industrial company, which means like three to five times rev, but more importantly, actually an EBITDA multiple. Crazy idea. I know that most of the venture capital industry can't spell EBITDA. What was that? What, was that? <laughs> yeah, what, what is that? <laughs> um, right. So I think in these situations, we've got uh, um, yeah rough numbers. I would guess is probably 50-ish percent of the companies at the sort of B and C round out there who are, they have viable businesses. They're actually good, good functioning companies. They were just like completely mispriced at the last round. And that's where mm -hmm. you're going to have to have some tough conversations with, let's reset the valuation. It's not because you have a bad business. It's that the world went from 20 times forward revenue to three to five times trailing. And no one's going to make any money on your previous valuation. So let's kind of reset this down to a place where you as management can still make money and your investors can make money. 
What yeah, uh, think, type of advice, I was going to say, what type of advice are you guys giving kind of startups in your portfolio that this is happening to? Yeah, I, I mean, I think <clears throat> generally speaking, especially for those who priced high, it actually feels like quite a healthy thing to be resetting valuations to a place that feels much more realistic to build kind of a resilient, steady company that can be EBITDA positive. I mean, I come from the lending world originally, so like you didn't, you don't lend unless there's EBITDA. Um, so I think it's, I think it's a really healthy thing. It's a painful conversation and it's a painful moment nine for founders and the existing cap table, but it's a really, it's, it's a good thing in the long run for the company to be able to build from a position of strength than trying to catch up on a future valuation that may never have been the right fit for them. Yeah. The, the advice we're giving them is, um, uh, we, we have pithy sayings for everything. No, no diet Coke down rounds, which basically means um, if you're going to do this sort of a reset or anything, don't do like a little small bridge round and hope you mm-hmm. can grow to the valuation, you know, something, something flat, because the world is never going back to 20 times forward revenue. Like never, we're not going to have 0% interest rates. Well, at least we, we're probably going to have much bigger problems in the world economy if we have to go back to 0% interest rates anytime soon. And that's what was driving these crazy forward valuations. Um, so if you if you understand that that world is never coming back, then that tells you, no, a little like small bridge round is, is just a bridge to nowhere. And actually you should do like a heavy handed push down the valuation as far as possible and reset yourself into this new reality that we're in, because it's going to be like this for the next decade, at least, if not more. It's somewhat situational dependent. Like, you know, we, we uh, have some alternative protein company investments. I mean, the market's largely foreclosed on that sector. Um, And so for them, I'm saying just like treat yourself as a CPG company, um, get profitable with the money you have. Um, Don't take any more dilution. And, you know, you can still have a three to five X revenue outcome, um, but just grow it over the next, you know, seven to 10 years. Um, You know, if you need a lot of capital equipment, um, that's another story. If you raised it too high of a valuation, that's another story. And some of the earlier stage companies um, that that didn't blow it out, um, you know, maybe we're we're also telling to put on the gas. So I I guess it would it it sort of depends on where the sector is. I think where the funding opportunities um, are, how quick they are, say, to revenue um, or how far they are away from revenue. Um, and, and those sort of capital equipment costs. Because I, I think there's, when you get into CapEx, there's just fundamentally a lot less investors around who uh, are willing to tolerate that or, or get scared by it. So um, you have to be a little more careful. Okay. Um, we talked a bit about the IRA. Um, kind of where where do you see the IRA um, uh, delivering the most kind of uh, help with the climate tech startups? We're going to wrap it up very shortly for, for 2024. Um, Greg, I know you've been following it closely. Kind of what are you seeing for, for the future for that? Yeah, I think actually just by happenstance, maybe it's more applicable to us than to than to Robin Kate, unfortunately, which is actually uh, very, very sad. Frankly, we should be shoveling money into the ag space, for example, and, and its oceans. Um, uh, but but in our space, it's there is a whole ton of money for anything to do with EV. And this might be EV battery supply chain. It might be going all the way back to mining. Um as well as the infrastructure there, so so EV charging infrastructure and the renewable energy stuff to to go and power all, power all of that. Um, 
I think most people are aware of that. What people aren't necessarily aware of is these other bills that are alongside the IRA, the Infrastructure Bill and the CHIPS Act, which are all about bringing manufacturing back to America. Um, and so for many of our companies that need to go and build big factories, there are very large dollars in those acts, uh, which people kind of forget about next to and uh, next to them. And so, for example, that's where Sand Elements got that $480 million grant, which was uh, out of the infrastructure bill. Um, so it's great that there are multiple pools of capital here, but they are very much designed to do two things. Um, one is to uh, is to um, increase electrification of vehicles. And then there's a smattering of things in there for other stuff like heat pumps and houses. But think of it as like, you know, $400 billion for EVs and like $8 billion for heat pumps, right? It's like a couple orders of magnitude difference. Um, but then the second thing all of these acts are trying to do is um, something that very much appeals to the right side of the aisle. And I think historically, all people in climate have been very good at talking to the left side of the political aisle and terrible at talking to the right side of the aisle. Um, and what is fantastic about these acts is they've actually brought sort of the national security side and jobs side um, of the climate crisis to the fore. And so people on the left side of the aisle might want to invest in this stuff because it's good for the planet. That's great. But people on the right side of the aisle want to do it because, you know, national security and screw China. Um, and at the end of the day, like, I actually don't care why people want to put the money in as long as they're putting the money in. And that's the exciting thing about, about where we're seeing this money come, come from. They are actually bipartisan, um, bipartisan bills. Okay. And we're going to have to uh, do some closing thoughts here now. Um, I know this conversation is about specialist uh, VCs in climate. So kind of what's your final pitch for the, uh, the startups, entrepreneurs, and other investors in the space? You know, why should they should be partnering with a specialist climate VC? Why don't we go with you, Rob? Well, why don't we go with Greg? I don't know if I have anything to add. I, I probably hogged some time there. So, All right. Kate, do you have any final thoughts on specialists? Um, not much more than I already said. I mean, I think right now there's, because the funding hasn't really started moving yet, and a lot of, at least in the ocean space, what we saw is that a lot of generalist investors were moving into our sector uh, at the tail end of 2020 and 2021, because they were there's, there were great opportunities, there were great valuations, and a lot of the other sectors were very crowded. Those folks really pulled back a lot um, when everything when the bottom fell out, and they're just starting to come back. But I mean, in our sector, a specialist underwriter and a specialist investor is um, you know they're one of the handful of people who are looking at opportunities. And to Greg's point, we are actively investing because we see this as a moment in time where we have a great opportunity to, you know, reset uh, the chessboard a little bit. All right. Thank you so much, Greg. You have final thoughts on specialist VCs? Uh, I think specialist VCs are almost by definition, because we tend to be more hardware industrially investors around climate space, going to give you a lower valuation. That is not a bad thing. Um, it's actually a healthy thing, right? And so typically where we see uh, people non non-specialists making mistakes is putting software multiples on hardware companies. And as a founder, that is going to come back and bite you at some point. It might not be this round or the next round, but it's going to get you eventually. Um, and it's very difficult, you know, when you've got two term sheets and one is a materially higher valuation than the other, to actually think that far into the future of, of how this could really hurt you. So uh, as a rule, we're, we're never going to be the high bidders, um, the specialists here, but uh, we would like to think that that's actually the right thing for you as a company. Uh, to do. Great. Well, thank you so much, Kate, Rob, and Greg. Appreciate your time today. And thanks for, for Ben and the SOSB guys for having us.